The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. I wonder if you've ever been driving in a strange city and gotten lost. Uh, And I know I'm probably speaking, like if you're, say, 30, 35 or younger, you might not have this experience because you've grown up in an age of, you know, cell phones and uh, immediate turn-by-turn directions. Uh, but for those of us a little more seasoned and you've grown up without, without that use of turn-by-turn directions, uh, we, we've probably been lost more than we care to admit. And then if we, um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but maybe add in the extra dynamic of living in a foreign country where English isn't the main language spoken and then getting lost uh, there, that adds a, a, a completely different layer to the whole story. And so let me, let me share a personal example. Uh, shortly after my wife and I moved to Germany back in 1999, we heard about this huge sale on office furniture that was happening in the a neighboring town, and we needed a filing cabinet for our small home office, so we decided we're going to you know, head over and try to find the sale. Uh, unfortunately, the sale wasn't in like an established business, like right on Main Street. That would have been far too easy. Um, the sale was actually happening in an old abandoned warehouse, tucked back in a, in a, in a part of town that was very hard to get to. Um, and so we're trying to find this place, and it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't take long, and we are helplessly lost. I mean, we have zero chance of trying to find this place. And, and, we just moved there. I knew a little bit of German. I wasn't, you know, wasn't fluent in it by any stretch. I knew enough to how to ask for directions and, and get directions. And so I see this guy and I drive up to him, roll down the window and, and I ask in German, you know, how to find this warehouse. Well, the problem is if you're in a foreign country and you ask somebody uh, directions or you speak to them in their language and they assume you know their language, right? And so this guy begins immediately rattling off directions in German to me, or I really should say it's more in the Bavarian dialect of German. And so if you've ever been to Germany, the Bavarian dialect of German is hard for even native Germans to understand if you didn't grow up in Bavaria. Uh, and all the while he's giving directions, you know, he's making turn, like, like you're going to turn right, you're going to turn left. He's doing all of this. He's gyrating and everything. And I'm just kind of nodding my head in amazement at how fast this guy is speaking to us. And, and in German or Bayerisch, um, as it's called. Now, when, when he'd finished speaking, if I had been a German, I would have said something like, you know, ich habe nicht Bahnhof verstanden, which is literally translated means, I didn't even understand train station. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a German idiom, by the way, of saying, you know, I didn't, I didn't understand a word that they said, uh, which is not exactly true, because all the while he's talking, my wife and I, we both understood one phrase that he kept saying. He's, so again, he's making turns, like you turn here, you turn... But all the while he keeps saying, Immigratos, Immigratos, which of course is German for just, just keep going straight ahead. Just, just keep going straight. And so there's this guy, he's doing this, doing this, talking. And the only thing my wife and I hear, you know, between the dozens of turns that he's telling us to make with his hands, the only thing we understand is just, just keep going straight ahead. Just keep going straight ahead. 
So my wife and I chuckle about it to this day. You know, whenever we get convoluted directions to some place from somebody, they get, we, we'll just look at each other and smile, and we'll say "immigrados." You know, that, that's kind of how we remember uh, that. Um, we did, by the way, eventually find the place, and we scored a sweet deal on a nice little filing cabinet for the home office. Uh, just for the record, uh, not not any help from this guy, although I, he was generally trying to be helpful to us. But I mean, he was just speaking so fast that I didn't have a clue what he was saying. You know, the reality is getting lost is rarely fun. Now, sometimes I guess you can make it an adventure, but it's, it's rarely a fun thing. We don't, we don't like being lost. But here's the fact. We've all been there, right? We've all been lost. As a matter of fact, I'll say even this further. We're all born that way. So you see, we're, we're, we're born to have a relationship with God but when we're born, we're at odds with God. From, from day one, out of the womb, we're at odds with God. We're, we're born separated from God. And so we're born, as the Bible would say, we're born as lost people. And that's true of all of us. Now, for the parent, of course, that means that our children are also born into that lost condition. All of our children are born that way. Every last one of us. And our child's lost condition is what makes parenting difficult, right? Uh, you know, I've said this before, you know, it, it sure would be nice to give birth to fully sanctified children. Uh, but that doesn't happen. That never happens. Um, now, by God's grace, some of our children trust in Christ at an earlier age than others. And so some will trust in Christ early, some later. And sometimes we're praying for the salvation of our children even into their adult years. But even after our children come to faith in Christ, so even after they're no longer in the condition, if you will, of lostness, they'll still have a struggle with sin. Because on this side of eternity, we'll, we'll never, none of us will be perfectly sanctified. Not our children and not we ourselves. We will never be perfectly sanctified. We will always be in a battle with sin, a sin that rages as long as we live in this fallen world. And so here's what I want to do with our time this morning. I, only have, I want to make two points uh, this morning. I, I want to talk about parenting our children when they're not yet Christians and parenting our children after they've become Christians. And you'll see the strategies really aren't that dissimilar. The way we parent our children before they come to Christ doesn't look a lot different than the way we parent them after they come to Christ, save for one notable exception, which you'll see in a few moments. And as with all, all the messages in the parenting series, I, I hope you'll see how these principles that we're talking about, they're, they're, they're not um, exclusive to parents and children, that these principles uh, apply to all of our relationships. Today I'll be using mostly parent-child relationships examples, but they reply to all of our relationships. So I've, I've titled today's message, Lost and False Gods. Those are the two gospel principles that we'll be talking about, examining today. If you're a note taker, here's the central idea. God created us to be worshipers. God created us to be worshipers, all of us. We, that's, that's how we've been created. And so before I go any further, I want to kind of explain what I mean by worship. And I'm going to use a quote, actually, from that parenting book, because I think 
Uh, Paul Tripp says it so well, but he says this about parenting. Um, and um, I'm quoting from page 154 in his book. He says this, though. He says, Worship is that inner desire for wonder, amazement, and awe that every human being possesses. It is that craving to be fulfilled. It is that constant search for life. It is wanting personal meaning and purpose. It's the drive to look to someone or something to give you identity. It's that universal hunger for inner peace. It's that lifelong hunt for God. It's the fact that we always live in service to something or that we always live in control of something. It's the reality that no one is godless. We all give our hearts to the one true God or to some created God replacement. End quote. Beloved, that's what worship is. And so again, two points I want to make this morning, but before I make those points, let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for your word, uh, your word that you've given, your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would use this time, that you would use my words, Father, as inasmuch as I reflect carefully what the Bible has to say, that you would use this time to mold us and shape us, Father, more and more into the image of Jesus. Help us as parents to love our children well, pointing them to Jesus at every step of the way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, point number one, non-Christians look for, look for someone or something to worship. So, you know, sometimes we mistakenly believe that non-Christians or non-religious people, the so-called nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, not, N, not, not like a Roman Catholic nun, not, not N-U-N-S, but the, these nuns, the ones who don't affiliate with any religion, we think, well, they don't have an object of worship. But that's untrue. As, as the uh, definition of worship that I just read a moment ago, uh, that's, that's untrue. The truth of the matter is every human being on the planet has an object of worship. Now that object may be a something or it may be a someone. It may be a possession or possessions. It may even be the person themselves. They might worship themselves. But we're all worshiping something or someone. And because we do that, or the reason we do that rather, is because that's who we've been created to be. That's how God has designed us to be. I've shared this quote with you before, but the great theologian, Christian theologian Augustine, um, he once said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And his point was this, that even before we come to faith in Christ, our hearts are seeking an object of worship. And that's why our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless because those objects of worship that we seek those objects that we want to fill that void in our lives, they will ultimately lead to disappointment. That object will not ultimately satisfy. Only God can do that. And so whatever object or someone that we choose to worship, even if it's our own selves, that thing or that person that we make the center of our lives to satisfy us, it will fail. Because only God can fill that God-shaped hole that all of us have within us. And so, when our children come into the world, they're lost. 
That's the biblical word that's used. They're lost. They, they don't know where they are. They're, they're seeking something to worship, but they're lost. And so they don't know what they're supposed to be worshiping. And here's, that's, here's why that's important for us to understand. As parents, we need to understand that our children come into this world as lost human beings. And if we don't understand that singularly important fact, we will have a tendency to work for behavioral change in our children rather than heart change. And here's what I mean by that. If we fail to adequately consider the condition of our child's heart, we will end up settling for. It's not that behavioral change is bad. But we will end up settling for behavior change, outward change that appears to be right. You know, we'll be happy when they clean the room. We'll think, I've done my job as a parent. He cleans his room without me being asked, without even being asked. Or we'll be happy when they make it home by curfew. And we think, again, I've done my job as a parent. They, they, they obey me. We'll be happy when they don't drink or they don't chew and they don't date girls who do. Okay? I'm glad some of you are listening there. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we'll have raised little Pharisees as children. Because on the outside, they're doing everything just right. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones. And so we must always remember that our goal is never simply behavioral change. And so, yes, it's a good idea to correct your children when their behavior is bad, right? That's, but our goal is not simply behavioral change. Our goal is always heart change, inward change. Now, of course, we recognize that we don't ultimately change their heart. That's the scripture that Kim read earlier speaks to that as well. We know that heart change is God's job. But God uses us in much the same way he used Cyrus as an instrument in his hands. God uses us as instruments in his hands to change the hearts of our children. And so how are we then as parents supposed to relate to our lost children? That brings us to our first text this morning. I've preached on this passage before uh, from Luke 15. um, But today I want to notice some specific principles uh, that help us as Christians to relate to non-Christians in our lives. Um, And in particular, of course, in a parenting series, parents to lost children. So um, let's read from Romans, excuse me, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribe grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? 
And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there will be there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, excuse me, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's the word of the Lord. Jesus here in, in sharing this parable, or perhaps, by the way, one of his most famous parables. Um, some might even say that this is three parables. The word in verse 3 says it's a parable, but regardless of how you count them, in each of the parables, Jesus is getting at the same point with quite explicit language. Every In each of those three stories, he's talking about something that was lost that is now found. And what I want us to do this morning, I want us to notice just three things about these parables. There's much more here, obviously, but just three things about these parables. First, in each of these parables, there is someone who is doing the seeking. 
In the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd is the one who's seeking. In the parable of the lost coin, it's the woman who is doing the seeking. And in the parable of the prodigal son, there is the father standing ready, his eyes always scanning the horizon for any sight that his son might be coming back, seeking the safe arrival of his wayward son. Now, in a very real sense, the person doing the seeking in all three of these stories is God Himself. Jesus tells us just a couple of chapters later in chapter 19 of Luke that He came, to, came into this world to seek and to save the lost. So our God, the, the God of the Bible, He isn't a passive God, if you will, sitting back just wondering what's going to happen. He is constantly seeking after those who are lost. And so since we've been created in His image, and since we as parents act as God's authority figure in the lives of our children, we too need to be seeking our lost children. In other words, we need to be seeking their hearts. Actively seeking. Not passive in that. We need to regularly point our children to Jesus. That's the main Goal as a parent of lost children is to point them to Jesus. I've heard some people suggest that it's tantamount to child abuse to point your own children to the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Now, very few Christians say that, but I've heard, I've read, that's child abuse. Well, there's a word for that type of thinking. That's insane is what that is. In fact, I would say just the opposite of those people. For, for the Christian parent not to take deliberate interest in the heart of his or her child is tantamount to child abuse. It's spiritual neglect of the highest order. And so we as parents need to actively seek after the hearts of our children. We need to point them to Jesus at every opportunity. And if you have lost friends, by the way, or other lost family members, we should do the same for them. Pointing them to Jesus. Second, from these parables or this, these three stories, notice this. Lost people are prone to wonder. Huh? There's a shocker for you. I bet you didn't know that before you came here this morning. Lost people are prone to wonder. Now we see this, prone, uh, this proneness to wonder, particularly in the first and the uh, last parable. You know, coins are inanimate. They don't wonder on themselves, okay? Um, and so, but sheep do, and so do children. In fact, one might argue that it's in the nature of sheep to wonder. You know, their nature to see the greener grass on the other side. That's why sheep need a shepherd. And this, by the way, is why children need parents. Now listen to me, this is very important. I'm going, to ask you, I'm going to ask this as a question. Now, this is a rhetorical question. I'm not expecting a, you know, an audience response here. Just think about this for a moment. Okay? Here's the question. What or who is the greatest danger in the lives of our children? What or who is the greatest danger in the lives of our children? Is it strangers? Stranger danger, stranger danger. Is it maybe unmitigated access to the internet? These children don't need to be on, online that much. Is it a serial pedophile? Is it perhaps an infectious disease? Now, some of those things are really, really bad, right? Others of them have the potential for being really, really bad. 
But I want you to know that none of those things pose the greatest danger in the lives of our children. So, what or who does pose the greatest danger in the lives of our children? Well, our children do. Our children are their own greatest danger to themselves. <laughs> Very good. That's exactly I'm glad you're tracking with me. That's a good job, young man. <laughs> and just like sheep need a shepherd who's going to rescue them from danger, so too parents are on a constant rescue mission for their children. That's what parenting is. It's a rescue mission from start to finish. And so we shouldn't be surprised when our little sheep wander. I mean, we did that as well, right? I mean, our memories aren't that foggy, I hope, that we don't remember that we all wandered. I mean, let, let's be honest with ourselves. We, when we were growing up, we wandered. I, I'm just looking at some of your eyes right now. Some of you are still wandering, okay, right now. Um, now, we might, maybe we didn't wander as far as somebody else wandered, but we all wandered. It's in our nature. And that's why the job of a parent is to rescue our children from their innate danger to or their innate desire, rather, to wander into danger. Here's the third and final thing that I want us to notice from these three parables. This idea primarily comes from the prodigal son, although we would see this as well um, in the other parables as well. I want us to notice how the prodigal son was received by his father. Now, let's, let's remember that the younger son had wished his dad dead. Now, you might say, I didn't. I didn't hear that. That's what he was doing when he said, give me my share of the estate. You know, generally speaking, you don't get your share of the estate until the owner of the estate has passed away. So when he comes up to his dad and says, give me my share right now, he's saying, you're as good as dead to me. That's what he's saying to his dad. Then the younger son goes away and he spends all of his har father's hard-earned estate money on loose living, you know, drinking, partying, brother said prostitutes, etc. And then when all the money's gone, here comes the younger son, tail between his legs, heading home. And I want you to notice that before the son says anything to his father, before he says anything to his father, the dad hugs him and kisses him. Now I'm not suggesting, nor is this text suggesting that uh, that when, when, when a child misbehaves, that there ought not to be consequences for that. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But I want you to notice that dad doesn't lead with that. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't judge him at any point in this parable. He doesn't even punish him at any point in this parable. The dad leads with compassion. He tells his servants to get the best clothes. He tells his servants to prepare a feast for this son of mine, he was dead, but he's alive now. Please listen, beloved. Lost people need compassion. That's what they need. Lost people, our lost children need compassion. You know, lost people have believed a lie. They believe that they're in charge of their own lives. They believe no one tells me what to do. But unfortunately, that, that's a lie. For example, maybe you have a teenage daughter who refuses to dress modestly because she likes the attention she gets from the boys at school. 
Please understand this. The conversation you have with your daughter, and I'm speaking here of a lost daughter right now. I'll get back to to how we have that conversation with a a saved daughter in just a moment. But the conversation you're having with your lost daughter, it's not a conversation ultimately about clothing. Okay, it's not. It really isn't. It's a question of autonomy. Your daughter thinks that she's completely in charge of her life, but she's not. None of us are. And so... When you have that conversation with your daughter, you don't lead with judgment. You don't lead with condemnation. You don't lead with punishment. You lead with compassion. Because that's what she needs to hear. She needs to hear compassion in your voice as you explain to her that she was created for more than just the attention of the boys at school. She needs to stop worshiping at the altar of being noticed. And she needs to hear that she was created to be received by God. The God of the universe. And that she doesn't need to dress provocatively to get his attention. Or maybe it's a teenage son in your household. He has an answer for everything. He is the fount of all knowledge, as a matter of fact. At least that's the way he appears to himself. And so what's happening here? Well, your son perhaps has bought into the lie that he is self-sufficient. He thinks that he has no ultimate need for anyone. And anyone who doesn't see things the way he sees them or behave as he thinks somebody should behave, well, that person, at least in his mind, is a simpleton. So he's bought into this lie of self-sufficiency. And so what does your son need? He needs compassionate parenting. He needs compassionate wisdom. He needs biblical insight. He needs to be rescued from himself because he's ultimately worshiping himself. That's who he's worshiping. And he needs to hear the compassion in your voice as you explain to him that he doesn't know himself as well as he thinks he does. But none of us do. That's why there ought to be compassion there. You hear me? When when you're telling your son you don't know yourself, you you don't tell him as like, because I know things. No, I don't even know myself as well as I think I know myself. None of us know ourselves as we think we do. But there is a God who knows us perfectly. And there is a God who loves us perfectly. And that God wants to have a relationship with us. That's the conversation we need to have with our lost son. Point number two. Christians know who they're supposed to worship, but they often get distracted. So a glorious thing happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus. Uh, The Bible calls this a new birth uh, or being born again. I'm always tickled when somebody, you know, in the media, they say, well, born born again Christians believe this as opposed to other Christians. There's only one type of Christian, okay? You're, You're either a born again Christian or you're not a Christian, all right? So when you get born again, you become a Christian. Paul tells us the old has passed away. Um, a new person is born. But while the power and penalty of sin may have been defeated in that moment, the presence of sin remains. This is why no one who comes to faith in Christ suddenly does everything right. No one comes to faith and then immediately begins walking a sinless life. That has never happened in the history of the world, and it never will happen. We live in a sinful world, and so... While Christians are no longer subject to the bondage of sin, we still live with the presence of sin. And because everything we do is ultimately rooted in our worship, the sin around us will oftentimes lead us to worship the wrong things. 
And as parents, we need to be constantly reminded that our children are worshipers. That's what they're doing. That capacity to worship is in them and it's designed to drive them to God. This inner longing for worship is designed to show them their need for God. But sin in this world and sin in them often blinds us to that reality. Just last month, I was on a flight to Indianapolis. Um, If you've done a lot of flying, you know that normally on a flight, those who need help getting seated, you know, if you're disabled, you have small children, you're maybe you're elderly, they normally allow them for some priority boarding. Uh, But on this particular flight, I'm I'm already seated. The plane's nearly full except the row in front of me. All four seats are empty on the row in front of me. And um, down the aisle comes this mom and dad with two small children. Now, my wife and I have traveled with small children, and so I'm uh, with two small children. We've even traveled internationally with two small children, so I'm sympathetic uh, to parents getting on board with small children. It's no fun experience. But did I mention already that both the mom and the dad were vision impaired? Both of them had seeing-eye dogs. Not just one of them, both of them. The dad appeared uh, to be completely blind. The mom appeared to be... extremely limited sight. I mean, just maybe enough to tell that, that there's light this way and darkness that way. Um, and again, they sat in the row right in front of me, so I had a close-up view of everything that happened. Let me, let me just say, it was amazing watching them you know, get their dogs, to, you know, the dogs tuck themselves, if you will, under the seats in front of them, and then watching them navigate getting car seats for two little, I mean, these, I'm not talking like little six or seven, I'm talking little kids uh, with them, car seats, buckling them up, etc. Flight attendants offered to help them with the process, but the mom and dad, they had everything under control. Some difficulty, okay, as you might expect, there was some difficulty, but they did everything by themselves. That experience, it got me to thinking. How about how the loss of sight makes even normal tasks, it makes them more difficult. Well, that's what sin does to us. Sin blinds us. Sin causes us to worship things that aren't ultimately worthy of our worship. And we don't see it because we're blind to it. Even as Christians, we're so often blind to it. And by the way, mom and dad, listen, that applies to you just as much as it does to your children, okay? This is true of all of us, that we're blind and sometimes we're worshiping the wrong thing. But listen to this verse from Isaiah 42. You needn't turn there. I'm going to just read one verse but for your notes. This is Isaiah 42, verse 16. Uh, The Lord God speaking here, and he says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. And so one of our jobs, again, as an instrument in God's hands, one of our jobs is to help our children see what's motivating them to do what they do. And so, why does your son want to be the captain of the football team? It's not necessarily a bad thing, but why? Why does he want to do that? Why does your daughter want to have a smartphone? Again, not necessarily a bad thing, but why does that want to happen? Why do your children get in fights with one another? Usually a bad thing. Okay. Uh, our job as parents is to pull back the layers of that onion, if you will, and get to the heart of it. What is at the heart of their worship? Because your child is a worshiper. What's at the center of their heart of worship? And once we unveil what's at the heart of that, 
Why is that so important to you? Once we get there, if it's anything other for your Christian child, if it's anything other than a desire to glorify God, then our job as parents is to lead our children into confession. Because we should do everything we do to bring glory to God. So can, can you bring glory to God as the captain of the football team? Yes, absolutely. Can you bring glory to God with a smartphone? Sure, you could. I don't know how much glory you're going to bring God by getting in a fight with your sibling, but the other things you possibly could, right? But it's, here's the point. It's not a time to get, you know, as you peel back the layers of that onion, it's not a time to get angry with them. It's not a time to berate them or belittle them. It's a time to point them to Jesus. It's a time to be tender and patient and understanding. It's it's a time to give them insight into their own heart so they can examine their own heart for themselves. And for our children who have already professed, professed faith in Christ, here it is. It's a time to point them to the Lordship of Christ in their lives. So you can't do that before they're... You, you can't point them to that before they're a Christian, but once they become a Christian, it's a time to explain to them, this is what it means for Jesus to be your Lord. And so to the Christian daughter who wants to dress provocatively... We tenderly point her to what Jesus expects from her. And we tell her what the Bible says about the importance of modest dress. And we, we, we point her to Jesus and to His Word, and we tell her that being a Christian means submitting to Christ's Lordship in our lives. That song, Lay Me Down, I Lay Me Down, I Lay Me Down, I Am Not My Own. Right? The song we just sang a moment ago? If you're not a Christian, that song should mean nothing to you. But if you're a Christian, that song should mean everything to you. Lordship means doing what Jesus commanded us to. And so maybe it's your Christian son who, again, who he knows everything. Well, we need to tenderly point that young man to Jesus. We need to tell him perhaps what Jesus says about arrogance. That he thinks he knows everything. Here's, here's a good verse, just in case you need that. Uh, if that's a conversation you need to have in your, your household. This is Romans 12, verse 3. Paul writes, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And again, in so doing, we're telling him that being a Christian means submitting to the lordship of Jesus in his life. You know, parenting is a wonderful, wonderful adventure. I was, um, Brian asked a question during Sunday school this morning about, we, Mary and I were the only ones in the class that have adult children. And I made the comment, we have three adult children now. So Matthew just turned 18 this past week. And so it just kind of hit me like, wow. Uh, wow, we're three at this point. Um, you know, by God's grace, there are amazing highs in parenting. There are also heartbreaking lows. But by God's grace, we point our little worshipers. Even before they come to faith, they're still worshiping. We point our little worshipers to God. We tell them about Jesus with every opportunity we get. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would help us 
as your followers, those of us in this room, Father, who confess openly faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, help us to understand what lordship means in our lives, both as parents, as children, as grandparents or single adults, whatever we may be, or that we would understand what it means to, to follow, to, to lay ourselves down, to walk obediently with you. Father, for our children who aren't yet Christians, whether they're young or in the middle or even into adulthood, Lord, you know a heart. Lord, you know my heart, how I desire, deeply, deeply desire to see my children trust in you and to walk with you. Lord, let, let that be our des- the desire of every parent in this room as we shepherd our children, pointing them to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.